We are in the book of Isaiah. Why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 44 for our text this morning. And uh, we'll be looking at chapter 43, 44, and maybe even 45 on Wednesday night. We'll see how far we get uh, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a book of prophecy, uh, among other things. Uh, But I love the powerful prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Um, and I love the powerful prophecies in the Bible, for that matter. You know, it's always amazing to me the people that um, uh, try to predict things in our, you know, history uh, and say stuff that's kind of kind of goofy, really. Um, I was sharing some of those things the other night, um, but let me let me share some more. These, these are great. Some of the world's worst predictions uh, or statements that were made about the future. Um, there was a guy who said, "I think there's a world market for maybe five computers." <laughs> Back in the day, remember they had made computers the size of this building uh, that I'm in? You know, it's, uh, they were huge. And, and, um, and that was Thomas J. Watson, chairman of the board for IBM uh, back in 1943. Uh, this is a good one, uh, who said this, it doesn't matter what he does, he will never amount to anything. That was Albert Einstein's teacher speaking to Albert's father in 1895. Uh, this is a good one. This telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. The device is inherently of no value to us. Western Union Internal Memo 1876. (laughs) Um, This is a great one. We don't like their sound and guitar music is on their way out. Decca Recording Company as they rejected the Beatles in 1962. There was some other band they accepted instead uh, which I can't remember their name. <laughs> Did you know they just uh, a few years back sold some of these uh, demo tapes uh, that the Beatles sent in 1962 uh, as their music and uh, Decca Recording Company, they were able to actually sell and make tons of money off just the demos uh, without even signing the band. It's kind of funny. Louis Pasteur's theory of germs is ridiculous fiction. Uh, that, that was said by Pierre Paché, professor of physiology at Toulouse in 1872. That's a good one. Um, this, is a, this is also funny. Uh, Marshal Ferdinand Foch, in 1911, he was a you know, French military uh, tactician, uh, and he was known for his brilliant warfare, warfare tactics. He said, airplanes are interesting toys, but they have no vil- military value. <laughs> Oops. Uh, whatever, how about this one? Whatever happens, the U.S. Navy is not, not going to be caught napping. Um, that was Frank Knox, U.S. Secretary of the Navy, on December 4th, 1941, just a few days before we were caught napping and Pearl Harbor was hit. Uh, one more. Stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Irving Fisher, professor of economics at Yale University, October 16th, 1929, right before the massive crash of the stock market. Man, you can go on and on. You know, men who've tried to predict the future or say, here's what's going to happen with some, you know, authority or with some knowledge. But as it turns out, well, man, they kind of choke. But I love the Bible for, for its great um, accuracy. When it comes to Bible prophecy, I believe, you know, there's many reasons we believe the Bible is the perfect, inspired Word of God. Um, I have a ton of reasons why I believe that. One of the reasons is it's Bible prophecy. The prophecies given to us in the scriptures are amazing. You know, the, 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 the telling of the future is something God does. He knows, the Bible says, the beginning from the end. Um, what does that mean, the beginning from the end? 
It'd be like, you know, the Rose Parade in downtown Portland. It probably won't happen, uh, you know, uh, but uh, all that to say, you know, you sit on the, the side of the road and you watch the floats go by and the bands and the different, you know, and it's one by one, linear. We, that's the way we see time in, in our world. But if you were to get up into the coin chopper, uh, up in a helicopter and look over Portland and you, if you position yourself right, you can see the beginning of the parade and you can see the end of the parade. You can see the whole thing, the beginning from the end and you'd see it all at one time. That's God, his perspective, if you would. He's got this eternal now existence outside of time and space, and so he knows what's gonna happen. And by the way, there's this theology out there that some of these college you know, professors with cardigans and pipe puffers, they're the ones saying you know, that God doesn't know the, the future. Uh, there's kind of a new uh, teaching out there that's kind of uh, wacko that God doesn't know. It's unwritten. And so, you know, you are in charge of your own destiny. Sounds uh, very Star Wars-esquian, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's stupid. Uh, God knows all the things that are going to happen. He knows the past, present, the future. Uh, and that's, that the Bible shows us that time and time again. We have a prophecy in front of us today that will do just that. God telling the beginning from the end. Uh, speaking the future. And it sort of is linked to a whole nother Bible story, by the way. Um, before I get into our text here in Isaiah 44, I want to remind you of a great story. You see, in Daniel chapter 5, there was a, a ruler, sort of a sub-ruler, named Belshazzar. His dad was probably a guy named Nabonidus, um, and his, his dad was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember Daniel, <clears throat> when he was a young boy, taken into Babylon, into captivity? That was when Nebuchadnezzar, in 586 BC, Nebi took the Jews and, and took them into captivity. But Daniel was made one of the leaders of those people uh, during that time. But if you recall Daniel telling the beginning from the end by the Lord, he said, you know, that after you, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire, there's gonna come another empire that's not as powerful as yours, but they're gonna take you over. It's the Medes and the Persians the Medo-Persian Empire. So by the time Daniel's an old man, well, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. He's probably dead. His son, Nabonidus, reigns in his stead. And so Nabonidus, some, for some reason, he leaves his son, Belshazzar, in charge of Babylon while he's off doing something else. And we don't know where he was. We don't know where Nabonidus was. Some believe he was in some other city under siege by a guy named Cyrus the Great. Uh, Cyrus was the Persian uh, now, Cyrus, he was, he was powerful, considered to be one of the greatest leaders of all the world's history, um, Cyrus the Great. And he'd conquered 46 different countries. Did you know that, Cyrus? <laughs> that's a lot of countries to conquer, 46, uh, including the, um, you know, the Mede, Medo Empire uh, and others uh, as well. But Cyrus was on a rampage, kind of taking over the world. Uh, Nabonidus was gone, and so Belshazzar, this sort of weak, party animal, young grandson of Nebuchadnezzar who didn't really have any experience and was just a little bit um, kind of lame, really. He was just kind of this, this guy that wasn't really powerful or anything, but he was just there resting on his laurels as the leader of Babylon. Well, why would he rest on his laurels? Because the city of Babylon was thought to have been impenetrable. You know, because of uh, the previous Babylonian rulers, they made Babylon this massive fortress, huge. It's hard to even get our brains around ancient Babylon. It was at one time considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, these walls of Babylon. Um, in fact, uh, 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 there was a guy named Herodias, 
um, who wrote, he was a Greek historian, in 450 BC, he wrote about the walls of Babylon. And uh, it's kind of hard to even imagine. He says this, in addition to its size, wrote Herodias, Babylon surpasses in splendor any city ever known in the world. Herodotus claimed the outer walls were 56 miles in length, 80 feet thick, and 320 feet high. Can you imagine walls uh, 320 feet high and 253 towers of defense around there? So not only do you have the tall walls that are 80 feet thick, um, and they have these 253 towers all the way around. Um, wide enough, these, the top of the wall was wide enough, Herodotus said, to allow two four-horse chariots to pass each other. They could race each other on the wall, uh, chariots with four horses. Um, and that was Babylon's walls. So not only was there, there this massive wall, but there was a wall within a wall. Um, so here's the picture, that wall that I just described, massive, seemingly, like who's going to be able to scale that wall or penetrate that wall? But not only that, they had not just a little moat, you know, I picture the cartoons with the alligators, you know, with the moat around the wall. It was the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River went right into Babylon and split and was this massive moat around that wall. So you got the moat, you got the wall, but then they built another wall on the other side of the river. So you got one wall smaller, you'd have to get through that, then you'd be in in the river, and then you'd have to go through the river, and then you'd have to go over the giant wall I just described. So the Babylonians had no worries in the world, and not only that, the fresh water of the Euphrates would flow into Babylon, and so they would have, you know, water to water their gardens and to grow food inside the city. In fact, some ancient writers speak of Babylon was a place, if you besieged the city, they could go on life as normal for 20 years uh, with never leaving the walls. Um, that would discourage anybody who'd think, we're going to besiege Babylon, we'll just wait 20 years. <laughs> Can you imagine that, being an army just sitting out there for 20 years hoping to uh, wait it out? So it was thought to have been impenetrable. And thus, Belshazzar and the Babylonians, they'd become weak, and they were resting on their laurels, and they put their trust in their walls. Meanwhile, Cyrus, he was thinking, how am I going to take Babylon? And Darius the Mede was also part of that, the Medes and the Persians. And uh, Cyrus gave the command to do something that was quite interesting. He had the the soldiers, um, instead of besieging Babylon for 20 years, he came up with a different plan. They built a sort of diversion of the Euphrates River a few miles away from Babylon, where they diverted the waters of the Euphrates so that there was just really um, a real shallow little river going into Babylon um, because uh, it was normally really deep, but they, they diverted it. So they were able to go to the first wall and there were these, these um, inlets for the water to go into the city, but they were normally 20 feet underwater and they didn't have scuba gear. So it would have been really hard to go and cut the, the brass bars um, of that gate underwater. Uh, but now they lowered the river up two miles earlier, and then the the, uh, Medes and the Persians cut the bars of the gate, went in, and just waded, Herodotus writes about this, uh, thigh deep in water. Instead of 20 feet, they were thigh deep, and they just waded through the moat. And they came to the gate um, where the next gate of the big wall, and, and they had a big gate there under the water, normally 20 feet underwater, big heavy gate. But as it turns out, after they diverted the water and they got to that gate, somebody left it unlocked. It wasn't even locked. 
So the Medes and the Persians just swung the gate open. They went into the city and came up through the water area and they took over the city. Did you know this uh, historical fact that when the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon, the average person in Babylon didn't even know anything happened for three days. It was such a bloodless uh, takeover, most people didn't even know what happened. Uh, but what they did is they came in and they slaughtered all the leaders and just put their Medes and Persians in place of all their leaders and said, hey, guess what? By the way, newsflash, you're all Medes and Persians now. You're part of our kingdom. And was like, hmm, okay. And that's all that happened. It was, it was like this crazy, relatively bloodless takeover of one of the mightiest cities in the world. So that's the way Cyrus would do it. That was his plan. And you know the biblical part of the story. There he was, Belshazzar, partying down in his palace there in Babylon that night. And it was a drunken orgy. It was a horrible, evil, wicked party. And there's, you know, the, the language of the King James translation and, and all the newer translations kind of cleans it up. But it was, it was a horrible, worldly, godless sort of drunken thing. And there they are, busting a move, partying down, and they even get the vessels from the Jews' temple. They say, hey, get those vessels we stole from the Jews' temple in Jerusalem. And they brought those vessels and they started drinking their alcohol from the vessels, the holy vessels of the temple. Once they started doing that, suddenly a hand appears on the wall, a disembodied hand. <laughs> Can you imagine? I bet Belshazzar's thinking, man, what did they put in this drink? Uh, this is crazy. Um, but he sees the hand and it's writing on the wall. And it's writing this phrase, meeny, meeny, tekle you farson. Like, what does that mean? What's the hand writing? What does it mean? Well, Belshazzar freaks out. He's so freaked out by the hand on the wall. Well, I don't know how to say this delicately, but his, the Bible says, the King James says, the, the knees of his, the joints of his loins smote together. What does that mean? It means, well, let's say it this way. He needed diapers at this point. Uh, he messed himself up real bad. And there he is standing in his mess going, oh, what are we going to do? Real classy. <clears throat> uh, but but uh, he says, get the Chaldeans and the soothsayers and the magicians and tell us what this writing means. Well, all the Chaldeans, we don't know what it means. And he's frustrated. Well, in comes the queen of Babylon, probably Belshazzar's mother, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, daughter, if you would. And she says, you know, back in my dad's days, there was this guy named Daniel who knew how to, knew how to tell dreams and, and knew to, how to interpret stuff. In fact, um, I love this description she gives of Daniel in Daniel chapter 5. She says, um, uh, there's an excellent spirit uh, and an understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts. In other words, taking away questions rather than adding to the questions. By the way, the thing I love about that, I hope there's more Daniels. We need more Daniels today. I'm saddened to see how we've become really good at raising questions, but we're not so good at coming up with solutions. It's almost like we've become a culture of question raisers and we're afraid to give answers or to come up with real solutions. We'd rather argue about stuff and be fighting about stuff than just to come up with answers. Um, one of the things the Bible says that there will be people who will be given more to raising questions than to give answers. I feel like when you go off to a college or university, you know, you're supposed to get the answers, but most kids come out of there more questioning about everything, especially their faith, than anything. Daniel was not such a, a guy. Um, you know, by the way, I, I think of things like, like um, defund the police. <laughs> There's a question, should we defund the police? And, and I think about that, I think, ridiculous. 
no culture in the world ever went without a police. Well, we don't really mean to defund the police. Uh, well, what do you mean? Like, what does defund the police mean? And so there's this question about what they mean. And it's raising more questions and strife uh, than really bringing any answers. And, and yet our culture seems to be content with being in turmoil and chaos, raising questions. I'd rather be the guy, and I hope Christians, you and I are people that are given to answers. And uh, defunding the police is not even a biblical theme. Romans 13 says the police, or the person who's enforcing the law, is a minister of God. That's what the Bible says. Um, so it's kind of an interesting conundrum. We find ourselves in our culture constantly raising questions, but never coming to answers. Well, that's one of the distinctives of Daniel. She said, man, he, he brings answers, dissolving of doubts. And so, you know, Belshazzar says, well, go get that guy. Is he still around? Now, Daniel's an old man at this time. So they bring Daniel in, and Belshazzar says, listen, Daniel, if you can tell me the writing of this, I will make you third commander in my kingdom. Why third? Because remember, Nabonidus was one, Belshazzar was two, and it would have been three for, for Daniel. Uh, we'll give you jewelry, he said, and we'll make you third in command. Let me read to you Daniel's answer um, about what this is. Daniel answered and said to the king, let your gifts be to yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king. Don't you love Daniel? He's like, yeah, you can have your junky jewelry and your position of power. Um, I love that Daniel's not enticed by these stupid uh, little uh, things. <clears throat> but then Daniel kind of explains his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar and how he was lifted up with pride, his, his grandfather. And um, and he kind of gives him sort of a history lesson. And he says, but you, O son of Nebuchadnezzar, um, Belshazzar, you have also not humbled your heart. You also are kind of lifting up yourself against the God of heaven. Um, and so you're going down. And he says, I will tell you what the writing on the wall is. And here's what Daniel said. And this is the writing that was written, meeny, meeny, tekel, you farson. And this is the interpretation of the thing, meeny. It means this, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You are done. Your number is up, is the idea. Um, man, time's up. You've been a fool too long, and you're done. That's meaning. Tekel, thou art weighed and the balances are found wanting. You're a lightweight when you should have been a heavyweight, Belshazzar. You were given so much. You know, the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. And Belshazzar was given the entire kingdom of Babylon, and he squandered it and was a fool. And so, you know, if you could picture the scales, you know, the, the, the scales of justice. Well, God weighed uh, Belshazzar and found him lacking. He was a lightweight. So your number's up, you're a lightweight. And then the last one, Perez, thy kingdom is going to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So what do you think Belshazzar does at this point? Oh no, does he freak out? Does he run out of the room? Does he go get his weapons? Does he, what does he do? No, this, 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 this is weird. They, they, so Belshazzar commanded that they clothe Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Do you ever get the sense that people aren't listening to what you're saying? You know, here's Belshazzar. Daniel says, tonight, you're, you're done. This is the last, you're, your number's up, you're, you're, it's over. The Medes and Persians are going to take over your kingdom. And he's like, great, um, get the robe, man. Let's put some jewelry on this guy. Hey, you're third in command under me. Um, Daniel's just thinking, I'm sure Daniel's like, yeah, whatever, as they're throwing jewelry on him and stuff. He's like, man, I don't want any of this stuff. But the problem is, that's where the world is today. You can talk about things that are important, 
that your number is up. You need to accept Christ. Hell is real. Um, judgment and wrath of God is something the Bible spends a lot of time talking about. People are like, yeah, that's great, man. But they, they don't really listen to what's actually, what actually is the truth. And that's the case of the world. That's Belshazzar. And so it says, um, then verse 30 of chapter five of Daniel says, in that night was Belshazzar, the king of Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Mede took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years. So Darius was the Mede. Cyrus wouldn't even show up into Babylon. And it was all his plan, but he wouldn't show up for 16 more days. So Darius takes over. Uh, Cyrus would come in 16 days later and see the kingdom that he just took over by diverting the waters. And uh, the rest is history. Well, Daniel, he lived for another three or four years after Cyrus took over. Now, there's something cool about this because uh, you guys know with Darius, Daniel and Darius became friends um, and uh, for that short time. Um, but there's something in there, maybe a little later I'll tell you about that's kind of cool about Daniel and the taking over by the Medes and the Persians. But the reason I go into this story is because Isaiah the prophet lived and wrote in 701 BC. So when, let's get the time frame of this. This is kind of tricky. Um, 701, Isaiah writes a prophecy about this event that I just told you about. 701 BC. Now remember, the number goes backwards because we're getting closer to, the, um, you know, uh, um, AD, but we're in the BC year, so the numbers go down. So 701, then 586 BC is when the Babylonians took over Jerusalem, dragged Daniel and his buddies uh, into uh, Babylon, and they would be there for 70 years of captivity. But it would be around um, 439 BC uh, when this Babylon was taken by the Medes and the Persians. So if you can kind of get the, um, you know, the, the sort of the dating of this, you, you realize there's a lot of years that have gone by. In fact, Isaiah's prophecy is over 150 years before this event happened. So what's this prophecy Isaiah does? Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 44, um, and we'll begin right there in verse 27. Isaiah 44, 27. It says here uh, in Isaiah 44, 27, um, and by the way, this, this, I'm kind of picking up in mid-sentence on verse 27, but it's, it's the section of scripture where God's saying, I have done these things, I have done that thing, I've done the other thing. The Lord's saying all the things that he has done. And if you pick up verse 27, it's saying, and I'm the one, the Lord, that saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Verse 1 of 45, thus saith the Lord um, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut asunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, that's Jehovah, which call thee by thy name and the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. <laughs> the 
The Lord says, I have called you, Cyrus, by name. 150 years before you even came onto the scene. Uh, the Lord names Cyrus. That's why he spends all this time at the end of this saying, I surnamed thee. I'm the one who named you before you were even born. Wouldn't be your mother. I'm the one who named you, Cyrus. And I'm going to give you all kinds of blessing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the strength to do. And he actually lists a bunch of stuff. Let's, let's kind of look at some of the list here the, of the things of the story that I just told you from Daniel chapter 5. Check out number one is verse 27 um, that says to the, says to the deep, uh, be dry and I will dry up thy rivers. That's the first part of that story that was fulfilled. The river of Euphrates was dried up. Prophecy number one, check. Um, then verse 28, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Um, prophecy number two, God names him by name. Cyrus would be his name. And God says, I have preordained you to do what you're going to do. Prophecy number three is interesting. At the end of verse 28, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. It'd be during the reign of the Medes and the Persians where, remember, Jerusalem would have been destroyed in 586 BC, leveled. The temple wiped out, the, the walls wiped out, Jerusalem sat in ruin, but it would be through the Medes and the Persian Empire where um, through his, Cyrus's kingdom, they would be given the command to go and rebuild Jerusalem and reset the foundation. This is all exacting prophecy from God about the things that the Medes and the Persians and specifically Cyrus himself would do. So you see the third prophecy, check. Look at verse one of uh, ch chapter 45. There's actually three little specific prophecies in this one. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand have I holden, to subdue nations before him. Like I told you, Cyrus defeated 46 nations under his uh, uh, reign and, and power. That was a massive fulfillment. God says, I did that. I I'm the one who gave you those 46 nations. And then this is a funny one. The uh, Pampers diaper situation was prophesied by God, uh, where it says, I will loose the loins of kings. <laughs> and he did that, check. Uh, that's what happened to Belshazzar. Um, and then th the, the, that's number five, I guess. Number six um, is the last part of verse one, where it says, um, and I will open before him the two leaved gates and the gates shall not be shut. Um, uh, one gate was cut up and the, you know, the leaves of the gate or the bars of the gate would be uh, cut. The other one would be left open, just like the Lord says here, check, number six. And then number seven, uh, verse two, uh, last part, I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut asunder the bars of iron, just like he did on the first gate. Um, all of these things were exact prophecies um, about Cyrus that God gave to Isaiah 150 years before it came. Don't you love this? Now, by the way, this is kind of cool because um, when, you, when you think about this, um, what a profound thing. There's a couple times in the world's history where the Bible comes into play in kind of a fun way. Um, this is like God's personal note written to, to Cyrus before he even um, was born. The question is, did, did Cyrus ever read this note from God? Um, the answer, I believe, is yes. Um, uh, Cyrus was able to boast the conquest of almost this bloodless overtaking of Babylon. But Daniel, who lived under the third year of Cyrus, uh, we know that from the Bible, um, we're told that Daniel presented Cyrus with a writing. Um, uh, now, we don't read this in the Bible, 
But Josephus, who writes, he's an ancient historian like uh, Herodotus. Um, uh, Josephus wrote in his writings about this event that Daniel presented Cyrus with Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, specific prophecies about himself. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, Cyrus sees his name in, in the scriptures. That's what Josephus wrote. So all that to say, uh, the inhabitants of Babylon, man, they had no idea that the, that the Bible was being fulfilled. Now, by the way, not only did Daniel show Cyrus his name in the Bible, according to Josephus, but we also read about that with Alexander the Great. After the Babylonians was the Medes and the Persians, after the Medes and the Persians, then was the, the, uh, the Greeks. And when Alexander the Great came to conquer Jerusalem, uh, he never did. And the reason why, well, there was a priest in the city, Jadua was his name, and he came out with the scrolls uh, of the book of Daniel. And he shows uh, Alexander his, his, the, the mentioning of the, the Greek empire coming in from Daniel's prophecy, taking over and, and coming into Jerusalem and that whole region of the world. So Alexander, very likely, according to you know, tradition, saw also that he was written up in the Bible, Alexander the Great. Now there's all kinds of things that all this makes me think of. And man, we could, we could talk for a long time about what all this means to you and me. But I just want to give you four things to think about this morning on this story and this amazing prophecy. Um, and, uh, and there's a couple problems that we want to address that people raise. But first, if you're jotting down notes, you can maybe just make these four notes. Number one, Belshazzar's false security. Write that down, Belshazzar's uh, false security. We learn from this story that God said, here's what's going to happen to you. And Belshazzar could have known what was going to happen to him and the, the city of Babylon, but he didn't. But he had a false sense of security in the sense that he thought his walls were going to protect him. They, they were seemingly impenetrable. Everything seemed uh, sure, perfectly airtight, but Belshazzar was dead wrong, and he was killed that night after he sort of pooped his pants. Uh, that's what happened. That's the Bible. Uh, what a horrible way for a guy to go down in history. I mean, that, that's his story. Uh, you know, this guy that needed diapers and got killed that night and lost the whole kingdom. Um, but that's what's going to happen to the person who puts their trust in this world. When they put their trust in things that we really shouldn't be putting our trust in. If there's one thing that 2020 has taught us, uh, you know, as people in the world today is, what can you really trust? Can you trust Dr. Fauci? Can you trust the World Health Organization? Can you trust all the news agencies and all the things that they're saying or talking about? Well, you know, most people laugh uh, to tears when you, when you talk about trusting anybody of those uh, people because they've given us such misinformation for such a long time now. We, nobody knows what to believe anymore. And, and that's why I love being a Bible-believing Christian. Man, I don't put my trust in CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or any of that. I put my trust in the Word of God. I follow the, the Scriptures, and that's a sure thing. You'll never be embarrassed if you just believe what the Bible says. People might think you're wacko. Uh, they might even make fun of you for believing the Bible. But as it turns out, everyone in history who believes the Bible, they win. It's a win-win when you're a Bible person. Uh, Belshazzar was the guy who put his trust in his walls and thought that everything was rosy, everything was good, but he had a false sense of security. He put his trust in the walls and on his own provision 
but didn't believe in or trust in the Lord. And I, I just want to put that out to you on this story that, man, God has told us what's going to happen prophetically in the world today. And yet there's still many of us, even as Christians, I think we fail to put our trust in the Lord. And I believe we really should. If you feel anxious or worried about what's going on in these days, put your trust in the Lord. We should be the most calm, uh, trusting people on the planet, knowing that God is in control. So you got Belshazzar's false security. Number two on our list of considerations on these stories, God's prophetic ability. I just want to sit back and just be impressed for a minute. God's ability to, to predict the beginning from the end. Do you remember on Wednesday night, those of you that are with us, there was a scripture in chapter 42. Let's back up a smidge in Isaiah 42, verse 8 and 9. Um, Isaiah reminded us this. In, in Isaiah 42, 8 and 9, the Lord says, I am the Lord, Jehovah. That is my name and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Before these things happen, I tell you about them. That's what the Lord says. I, the Lord, am the one who does this. No one else does. And I, I like to just, you know, bask in this truth for a moment that the Lord is the one who's able to speak the truth about the future. God's prophetic ability. And again, of all the things that makes me believe in the Bible, man, you gotta just say the Bible is miraculous. No other book even comes close to the exact predictions. We could talk about just the prophecies about Jesus Christ alone, the coming, the first coming of Jesus. More than 300 prophecies specifically about Jesus and the Messiah as he's coming. Um, and they all came to pass. Everything from the city he was born in, Bethlehem, the fact that he would ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. But not only that, Daniel chapter 9 gave us the very day when he'd ride into a, uh, Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Um, you know, that he would go down to Egypt, that he would live in Nazareth. Like all of these things were prophesied of the Messiah, Jesus, that were perfectly fulfilled. Even more risky, if you would, uh, uh, God says, here's what I'm going to do with my people Israel. I'm going to, and this is all over the Bible, it's in Isaiah, it's in Ezekiel, um, God says, because of the rebellious nature of Jew, the Jews, uh, the Jewish people, I'm going to scatter them over the world. It's called the diaspora. And I'm going to scatter them, the Jews, because of their rebellion. And so AD 70, God did that and perfectly fulfilled that. But then the Bible also prophesied that the Jews, after a long period of time, the Lord would not forget the Jews and he would not, he would not forsake the Jews and he would start to regather his people into the land of Israel in the last days. And what we've seen since the 1700s, slowly but surely, Jews have been migrating back to Israel. Now, we've got the, you know, May 14th, 1948, God did what he said he was gonna do. He made a nation out of the Jews once again. And there, they became one of the most powerful nations in the world today, the Jews. And not only did they, the Bible say they would regather, but they would lose their language and they would get their language back. Hebrew language became extinct. It was only an academic language until, you know, just not that long ago, really. Now everybody in Israel speaks Hebrew. It's an amazing prophecy. You know, if you want to believe in God, just, just two words, the Jews. That's all you got to look at. That God has confirmed his existence because of what he said about the Jews specifically. And I could go on and on about more exact details, but God's prophetic ability, nobody even comes close. The Bible's 100% accurate when it comes to prophecy. 
I've mentioned this before, George Orwell's 1984 was 35% accurate, um, which is interesting, good for him, but 35 is not good enough. God's perfect, his word is perfect. Which leads us to the third of our considerations really today. First of all, you know, Belshazzar's false sense of security, um, God's prophetic ability, but the Bible's reliability, that's the, the third one. This prophecy from Isaiah 44 and 45 gives me, once again, reaffirmed um, trust in the reliability of Scripture. Um, I hope you can know that we can put our trust in the, the Word of God, the reliability of Scripture. And, and um, now here's where it gets kind of interesting, and I've talked about this, but I, I want to make sure you guys are really familiar with this and, and perhaps good at defending uh, this, this thing. What, what, what do you do if you're a college professor and you're trying to teach people that the Bible's full of errors and contradictions and it's not the Word of God? That's, that's, their, that's their agenda. That's what they want to do. They fight feverishly. So uh, bravely they go into their classrooms to a bunch of 18-year-old kids and they try to say, the Bible's full of errors. And the 18-year-old kids go, okay, the Bible's full of errors, writing down their notes. Um, and they sit there and bash 18-year-old kids and tell them about the Bible's errors and all this stuff. Uh, but they come up with these sort of harebrained uh, ideas of how to diminish the Bible. And one such uh, attempt is with scriptures like this one today, that Isaiah the prophet wrote 150 years before this happened. What do you do if you're an atheist and you're saying, I don't believe this? Well, this is what they do. They say, well, it has to have been a forgery. There's no way, this is the premise they start with, there's no way that Isaiah from 701 wrote the prophecy of Isaiah 44 and 45 about Cyrus and named him by name. So somewhere somebody's cheating. That, that's what they say. So they conclude this. So they came up with this idea. Well, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 has sort of a different tone and writing style than Isaiah's 40 through 66. Now, if you're a Bible person, you know why there's a change of Bible style. And I've gone over this in our studies. Um, the first half is like the Old Testament match. The second half, 40 through 66, is the New Testament match. And the old, the old parts, the heavy, brutal part, the, the chapters 40 through 66, is the beautiful, gracious part of God. And, and, and there's this great reason why there's a change of style. And not only that, if Isaiah is inspired by God to write, can God change his writing style? Uh, is that something we should worry about? Is that hard for God to give Isaiah a little different writing style? But they use that and they say, there's a totally different writing style. So we know it's a different person. They call him the Deutero Isaiah. That is that there's two Isaiahs. One was very early, 701, chapters one through you know, 39. And then the Deutero Isaiah came much, much later because there's no way he could have written about Cyrus the Great with such precision. So there must have been a guy, and this is a forgery, and we call him the Deutero. There's even some, you know, professors out there that claim a Trito. There's three Isaiahs, and they have to do that because uh, there's other pr prophecies that came to pass, and there's no way that the same Isaiah could have done all three of those prophecies. Are you guys with me on this? So the college, universities, all these guys, they say there's a Trito or a, a Deutero, and it sounds really flashy. Deutero Isaiah. Okay, got it. Write down the notes. But I'm here to tell you there was only one Isaiah, and he wrote the book of Isaiah from chapters 1 through 66. And I know this to be true because I'd rather trust someone who knows about this than some college professor that's trying to diminish the Bible. Um, who, who knows about this, Brett? Well, would you say that the Apostle John 
would know about the book of Isaiah. Now, keep in mind, Jesus discipled the apostles, and Jesus told about himself. And, and remember, even the, the deacon, Philip, in the New Testament, knew how to explain what the book of Isaiah was about. Remember there in the, the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading the book of Isaiah, and, his, and he's sitting in his chariot reading. And Philip comes and says, do you know what you're reading? He says, no, can you explain it to me? And Isaiah explained to the eunuch of all the things in Isaiah as it related to Jesus Christ. The New Testament apostles and leaders of the church, they knew what Isaiah was all about because they hung out with Jesus. Uh, if, you're if you're tutored by Jesus, you kind of know what you're talking about. But all that to say, keep your finger here and turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 12. John chapter 12. And there, um, you know, uh, John the Apostle is writing about when Jesus uh, did all the miracles, but they wouldn't believe in him. And, and then John would say, this is a fulfillment of what prophecy, the prophecy from Isaiah uh, speaks of. Now check this out. It's John chapter 12, verse 37. It says, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. <clears throat> verse 38 that the saying of Isaiah the prophet <clears throat> might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, and that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. <clears throat> These things said Isaiah, <clears throat> excuse me, when he saw his glory and spake of him. Now, the content of this is great. I wish we had time to go into why they would not believe, so they should not believe, so they could not believe. There's a, a great um, sort of progression here that you see today in people. But aside from the actual point of this, I love that John the Apostle takes great pains to explain, as he quotes from the book of Isaiah, he quotes from several places in Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah 53.1, Isaiah 6.10, Isaiah 6.1. All three of those passages he quotes from. But notice one of the quotes is from Isaiah <clears throat> um, 53, the last part, the deutero Isaiah. And the other part is quoted from Isaiah chapter 6, the first Isaiah of these guys that believe in the dual Isaiahs. <clears throat> but John the Apostle, I think this is just inspired by the Lord to say, I'm going to not only say Isaiah said this, but did you see what he says? <clears throat> it says um, in verse 39, therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah, which Isaiah? The same one, <clears throat> the same Isaiah. That John takes pain in the original language. He says the very same Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes. So he quotes from 53 and then says, and that same Isaiah said, and then quotes from Isaiah chapter six. So John the apostle believed there was only one Isaiah, and it was the same guy, and he took great pain to say that same Isaiah said this. So here's what I like to do. When I was in college and I had professors explain to me the Deutero-Isaiah theory, I just would raise my hand and say, do you believe you know more about the book of Isaiah than the Apostle John? Because <laughs> if you're a professor, you say, uh, especially if you're one of these you know, uh, so-called Christian theology professors in these colleges, you know, if you're saying, yes, I do, I know more about the uh, book of Isaiah than John the, John the Apostle, then I think most of the kids in the class will go, mm, that's a little act to, to believe you know more about Isaiah than Jesus tutored John. You see, that, that makes no sense to me at all. So all that to say, as we look at the book of Isaiah, we, we realize it's just one guy and it's the same guy. 
The only reason I believe ultimately they're trying to make two Isaiahs out of this is because they want to pretend that God doesn't know how to tell the future. And the Bible is not that miraculous. There's no way that the book of Isaiah could predict with such precision. And I just want to tell you, um, if you believe Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the idea of God knowing the future is not that big of a deal, really. I mean, I think it's amazing. But if God can say, let there be light, there's the sun, this huge ball of gas burning in space. He just spoke it into existence. Is knowing the future that big a deal comparatively? You see, watch out for anyone who tries to diminish God or diminish his word. And I love that the Bible is completely reliable. Don't let these guys try to diminish. And I'm telling you, it's not just your college professors, it's Discover Channel, uh, uh, you know, it's the, um, it's the History Channel and all their so-called religious scholars. They're prolific, all these guys that are everywhere doing all their work that are trying to diminish God's word. Um, if, you, if you just read your Bible, you'll find it to be miraculous, powerful, and inspired. And, uh, and that's the problem. Too many people don't look at the Bible through that lens any longer. So you have the Bible's reliability, number three. But that brings us to our final point as we observe this great prophecy from Isaiah 44 and 45. We have number one, Belshazzar's false sense of security. Don't be like that. What a dupe. Number two, God's prophetic ability, powerful. He's able to tell the beginning from the end. Number three, the Bible's reliability that that man, we can read the Bible, and if this prophecy came to pass with such exact detail, that brings us to point number four, our own destiny. You see, because the Bible has much to say, in fact, you might even argue more to say about your and my day that we live today and the future of the world than he even said about Cyrus. I mean, the detail of what's going to happen in the world in the end times is so, well, it's exact. There's so much the Bible has to say about the last days. I feel that we as a culture, and not even just the Christian culture, but everybody in the world, if anybody would just take a minute to really look at what the Bible says, more than a minute, but, you know, and read about the end times, we should all be stunned. Stunned about what? Because with such precision, the players, the pieces, the things that God predicts about the future— are coming into place exactly like the Bible says. If you missed our prophecy update on Friday night, just two nights ago, um, man, we talked about the Ezekiel 38 prophecy, where the, you know, the, uh, if, it's a long story, but in Ezekiel 38, there's going to be these nations, um, and they're the ancient names of the nations, so people get stumbled by that, but Gog, Magog, Tubals, uh, Meshach, uh, you know, and, and all these countries, Persia, which is modern-day Iran. But basically, the main players are Russia, Turkey, Syria, uh, Sudan, L- L- Libya. These, these nations are going to be involved in what the Bible says in Ezekiel 38 is an attack on Israel in the last days. Now, we talked about this. Uh, Isaiah 17, by the way, uh, in our book, one, it, it prophesies that the city of Damascus in Syria will be leveled and destroyed, and nobody will ever live there again. That's an interesting prophecy because um, Isaiah, Isaiah tells us that, but not one time in the world history has Damascus been uninhabited or fully destroyed. <clears throat> That's an interesting thing. In fact, if you look it up in your you know, encyclopedia or, or online, um, Damascus is thought to be by, by many the oldest city in the world, the oldest un uh, interrupted city. In other words, there's always been inhabitants of J- Damascus longer than any city in the world. 
And yet the Bible says there's coming a day where Damascus will be destroyed, leveled. Well, how will that happen? And we've talked about the prophecies, but right now Damascus is being bombed as we speak by Israel, but strategically, you know, uh, pinstrikes where uh, Hezbollah and Iran are setting up rockets and, and stuff. The Israelis are sort of bombing those places. But the one thing the Israelis have said in times past, that if, if any of those rockets come flying over from Damascus, the Israelis have threatened to destroy Damascus completely. And right now things are tense, like, uh, you know. So, so we talked about this, the Russians are coming. <laughs> How are the Russians coming? Well, um, Putin is sending his soldiers and commanding officers and commanding their own little army right on the northern border of Israel. In fact, the Russians are on the Golan Heights right now in the border of Israel. And they're sending the, the, you know, the, the nation Turkey, Russia, Syria, they all have soldiers right on the northern border of Israel. And, and Israel, this is an interesting thing, Israel has been sort of lulled into thinking, great, the Russians are here and they're protecting our northern border, great. It's almost like Israel is saying, great, we're really happy to have uh, the Russians there. But what will happen is the Bible says in Ezekiel 38 in the last days, see, and I believe that the destruction of Damascus will be the trigger. Um, if Israel destroys Damascus, they're already bombing Damascus, but if they fully destroy Damascus, then the Russians are not gonna stand for that and that will be the excuse they need along with Turkey, Syria, Sudan, and I explain how Sudan's involved on our prophecy update, but uh, uh, they're going to come and they're going to eventually invade Israel. Not that far-fetched, you know, when you think about all the invasions that people have tried to do in Israel. You know, when Israel became a nation in 1948, five Arab nations the next day uh, attacked Israel, um, and Israel defended itself, you know, as a brand baby new country. They literally welded uh, half-inch steel on the side of pickup trucks and use those as sort of tanks to defend themselves in the War of Independence there in 1948. But all that to say, Israel's been attacked over and over and over again. But the big one is gonna be when Russia, the Gog-Magog invasion is what it's called, Ezekiel 38, 39, and there's probably gonna be nuclear weapons involved with the whole thing. And it's all described there for us in detail. And the reason I share that with you is we are watching all these players that 20 years ago even, the players weren't in, in position. We, we scratched our head. We, we, we thought Turkey was good friends with Israel. They were. They were the best friend of Israel in all of the Middle East. Today, Turkey is one of the worst enemies of Israel in the Middle East. And they're in league with other nations that are gonna, gonna attack Israel. We're watching the future unfold, even as the Bible said it would. And we could talk about everything from the mark of the beast. Um, not even hard to imagine now. Can you imagine, um, uh, you know, that some, some Bible uh, eschatology students are suggesting that maybe the mark of the beast is more than just what we thought, thought it was. Maybe it's an identification that will also uh, be linked to uh, this pandemic. Some people wonder. Uh, you know, everybody has to wear a mask, but instead of being socially, uh, you know, distanced and having to be traced by um, COVID tracers and all that, um, they start keeping records with a mark and you can buy or sell. Right now, you can't buy or sell without a mask. Uh, you can't go to Costco or Rite Aid or uh, Safeway without a mask on, but people are getting tired of a mask. Do you ever wonder why would somebody get a mark? Uh, who would agree to that? I think people saying, well, we, can we go back to our normal lives? Okay, if we have to have a mark that identifies the, who we are, what immunizations we've had. I mean, maybe it's conspiracy theory, but at the same time, 
There's actually, uh, you know, these quantum dot tattoos that are being talked about um, by others that actually is sort of a, a tattoo that goes under the skin that contains information. Um, and it's a long story, but you kind of wonder, all the technology is there for the world to go this way. And, uh, and we're seeing people are trying to trace and figure and come up with solutions and immunizations. I wonder if all of this stuff is coming together to be fulfilling what the Bible says in the last days will happen. Now, you say, Brett, that's scary stuff. I don't like talking about Bible prophecy, death and bombs and marks and Satan and Antichrist and all that stuff. Well, see, that's just it. I believe that the next thing on the list of things to do is the rapture of the church. You see, if you're a Christian, the next thing, our destiny is to be taken up before all that stuff comes down. Now, I do believe, however, things could get a lot worse before the rapture, too. Like, it's, it's not unthinkable to, to see that things could get even much worse for us. But before the great tribulation takes place, I believe we are going to be taken up to be with the Lord. Why? Throughout the Bible, the Lord says, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. My, my people are not appointed unto wrath, uh, but to obtain salvation. First Thessalonians 5 says that. And the Lord talks about before the Antichrist is revealed, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that he will take his church and the spirit of the church out of the way before the Antichrist is fully revealed. All this stuff is going to happen after we are taken up to be with the Lord. Now, you might say, well, Brett, my pastor told me <coughs> we're going to have to go through the tribulation, then the rapture. And that's just a theory that he has, and I believe he's wrong. Uh, and I give, I, I've given teachings on why I believe in a pre-trib rapture. Some people don't even believe in the rapture at all, sad to say. But it's right there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we which are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air. That's what the Bible tells us is going to happen. So <coughs> again, I'm one who takes the Bible literally. I don't try to jumble it all up. And, and that's, that's the mistake people do when they, they don't take the Bible at face value. And the Bible's reliability. Man, we have a destiny that the Lord has told us how it's going to shake down. And you and I have a lot to look forward to. We have the rapture of the church. Man, I, I think about that often, you know, that, that we're, this place is not my home. The more I live during these days, the more I feel like a stranger in a strange land. I was in downtown Portland the other day, and it looked like the apocalypse has hit. Uh, it's, it's really something to watch what has happened to our city. Um, one of the things the Bible says in the last days would lawlessness will prevail. Lawlessness. So when I talk about defunding police, that's a prophecy of the Bible. In the last days, there'll be lawlessness. And people will go to, around burning buildings and trying to, you know, they, you know, they were burning Bibles in the street of, in Portland just a couple days ago. They were trying to burn the, the federal building down with people in it. Murder is what we call that. Um, that's what they were attempting. And it's our city. We watch it go up in flames and the world kind of goes, oh, that's too bad about poor Portland. Um, it's all in the national news. But what do we do? As Christians, we realize these are signs of the times. And as it saddens us on one hand, we look forward to being in heaven with the Lord for all eternity. Now, one thing that we have to be careful about as I close is, you know, these days might feel like the last days, and, and they really are, I think, possibly. The rapture of the church could be soon. But instead of just looking forward to the rapture, which I do, but I also need to be busy about sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Because, man, when the rapture of the church happens, like the Lord, I want as many people to be saved as possible. That's what the Lord says. He says in Second Peter, I don't, I'm not lazy or slack concerning my promise. 
I'm, he says, I'm just wanting all to be saved, that everyone would come to repentance. And the Lord is patiently waiting. And if you're one who, for whatever reason, has not accepted Christ, you've been reluctant. Maybe you bought into the lies of your college professors that said the Bible is full of, uh, you know, errors and, and contradictions. Take another look. Don't just believe those guys that have an agenda, but take another look at the Bible. And if you give an honest look at the Bible, you can be nothing but impressed. This is God's word. And God's word says that humanity is doomed because of our sins. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You can be on the side of God um, if you accept his son Jesus and believe. The way you become a Christian, and by the way, a Christian is not somebody who's fake, wearing a big smile and a big Bible and going to church all the time. That, that's sometimes what Christians do. But, um, but a real Christian is somebody who, who's a sinner who repents. They repent of their sins. That means to change your direction 180 degrees and go the opposite direction. Say, I know I'm a sinner. Change your mind, change your direction. And then you accept the forgiveness of God through the cross of Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose up from the grave. And it says there in Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, you will be saved if you accept and believe. And that's all you've got to do. Um, it's easy for you because Jesus did all the work. It's there for the taking. It's, you, it's whether or not you'll choose. A lot of people are not going to make it to heaven because they were unwilling to accept this free, beautiful gift of God, eternal life. If you'd like to do that, just pray right now, right wherever you are. Say, Lord, I, I accept the work of the cross. I, I repent of my sins. I believe you died for me and rose again, and I accept that free gift that you give me of salvation. And if you say that and confess it, not just with your mouth, but from your heart, the Bible says you will be saved. That, that'd be so cool to hear, hear from you. In fact, if you would, if you want to, let us know. You can, you can let us know by calling the church, say, hey, I accepted Christ, or even make it easy on you. We'd love to hear and just know if people are hearing the gospel today by uh, texting the number at the bottom of your screen there and just text new believer. And that'll let us know that you've just accepted Jesus and you've, you've come to Christ. And then I would also say, find a Christian and have fellowship with them. Um, you know, let us know if we can help. If you don't have a Bible, we can send you a Bible. We can get you set up. Uh, our pastors would love to talk with you. But um, man, above all, I hope that you hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So man, this prophecy is powerful. Watch out for Belshazzar's false sense of security. A lot of people are putting their security in this world, in their stupid walls, dumb. Don't do that, but, but uh, really appreciate God's prophetic ability to tell the future, the Bible's absolute reliability, and lastly, our own personal destiny. We have a future with the Lord. The question is, which future are you going for? The one where you accept Christ and be saved, or where you reject Christ and are doomed? That's the question of the day. Lord, I pray that you'd cover this group that's listening in, whether they're tuning in from their house or their car or wherever they are, Lord. I pray that today they just have their hearts either comforted to know that there's a hope of heaven and that you're gonna take your church someday. Or Lord, if people need to accept you or be saved, I pray that many would come to know you and that people would believe and accept. Lord, I pray that um, you just cover each, each person that's listening and that they'd have ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church today. And this we ask and pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.